Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to take it and turn, if you will, to the 46th Psalm. This New Year's Day, we'll begin the year with a message I've entitled, uh, not very creatively, a psalm for a new year. But I want this psalm, the 46th Psalm, one of the most beloved psalms, to be inscribed on the tablet of your heart as we embark on a new year by God's grace. Now, as you're turning to Psalm 46, just consider with me that indeed it is a new year. And often it is a season of our lives where we reflect and we consider all the more those things we've neglected in the year gone by. And so a lot of you have those resolutions in mind. A lot of you resolve to make church attendance something that you are going to prioritize a little bit more. Hence, you're here. Praise be to God for it. Some of you have resolved to be in the Word day in, day out. So you began today in Genesis chapter 1. You've resolved to be a man or a woman of prayer. But if you're anything like me, you know that when you look through the front windshield at a new year, there's just something about that rear view mirror that's right in your line of sight. You want to look ahead, but all you can see is the year gone by. And I wonder for how many of you here, when you glance in that rear view mirror, there's a lot of failure, a lot of shame, there's a lot of fear that you just can't help but fixate on. Consequently, as you look ahead to a new year, you begin to get discouraged recognizing that what you see in the rearview mirror today is probably what you're going to see in the rearview mirror 365 days from today. And if that's you, if fear has gripped you, if there is a lot of uncertainty in this coming year for you, I want to draw your mind and heart to this 46th Psalm, one of the most beloved of all the Psalms, a Psalm that I have probably preached at more funerals than any other text of Scripture, a Psalm that I trust if you have ears to hear, oh, if you hear me this day, it will do a work in your soul such that as 2023 lies ahead, you will meet it in a way you haven't met New Year's before. Psalm 46 if you found it, why don't you stand with me as we read together God's Word. We're unclear the background to this psalm. Some speculate that it was written about a great battle that occurred between King Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and the Assyrian ruler Sennacherib. Some think that might be the case, but we're just really not sure. What we do know is something terrible was going on, and this psalm was written in the face of crisis. I wonder if you can resonate with the psalmist in Psalm 46, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the words of the inspired psalmist of God. I'll begin by reading the superscription, those small little words at the beginning, for they are as ancient as the text itself. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, which we don't really know what that word means, by the way. It probably is talking about a high-pitched singer, but nobody really knows. It's a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. You see, you see, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. 
The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. But God utters his voice and the earth melts. You see, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. So come, come, behold the works of the Lord. Behold how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Why don't you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, I'm asking now that you would come and tune my heart and all of our hearts gathered here this Lord's Day. Tune our hearts to sing as this psalmist sung. And I ask this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what if your worst fears come true? The great what ifs that have kept you up at night, what if they come true? For some of you this past year, they did. The diagnosis came that you never saw coming. The pink slip came that you never saw coming. The phone call never came from the child you've just been praying would reach out to you at the holiday. The death occurred that you never saw coming. If it didn't come this year, mark it down, my friends, it's coming. The longer you live, I, I trust many of you in this room who are older and I, than I can affirm this, that the longer you live, the more your tune begins to change and you start to realize by experience that what you used to think only happened to other people sooner or later happens to you. And you begin to recognize that if it can happen to somebody else, there is a really good chance it's going to happen to me. And so the question then becomes, what do you do if your worst fears come true? What do you do in that moment? The psalmist resonates with us. He entertains this possibility, dare I say, probability. For the psalmist imagines the otherwise unimaginable. He conceives the otherwise inconceivable. He begins to think about the unthinkable. In this psalm, did you notice what he says? He begins to describe a, an apocalyptic scene that just seems otherworldly. Just look with me, if you will, at verses 2 and 3. He says, though the earth gives way, though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. This psalmist was probably in the ancient land of Israel. And if you were in Israel and the earth began to quake underneath you, an earthquake came, you would head for the hills, so to speak. That's what they would have done. They would have left the dry plain and ran for cover in the hills. But the problem is, if you flee where the ground beneath you is quaking and you run to the hills and then all of a sudden those hills begin to slide down, 
You're going to run the opposite way. Instead of fleeing to the hills, you're going to run from the hills through the quaking ground and you're going to head to the Mediterranean Sea, your only refuge. Except when you get to the sea, what happens? Those waters are roaring and foaming. So if the ground is unsteady, if the mountains are unsteady, if the sea is raging and roaring and foaming, where do you go? And that's the point. The psalmist is saying, where do you go when you have no place to go? How can you stand when you just don't understand? That's where the psalmist is. And I wonder how many of you are there. Where would you go when everything in your life begins to crumble underneath you? When what was once a sturdy foundation begins to crumble. When once was a refuge, the mountains begin to slide down at you. When your last hope, the waters, if you thought you could just escape there and once you get there, it's just as tempestuous as the ground. Where do you go when you have no place to go? Where do you stand when you have no place to stand? I wonder how many of you find yourself doing something like this. You, you begin to soothe yourself. You recognize your life is falling apart and all you know to do is numb the pain through substances. Or perhaps you try to secure yourself. You're trying to build your own foundation by just hoarding money, building bigger barns, thinking if only I can get my own little piece of this pie secure, then all the raging around me won't get to me. Or perhaps there's a great many of you that have just tried to shield yourself from all of this by by just getting soaked up in your hobbies or your entertainment. You know it's happening and you just need to distract yourself. You need to escape it. But my guess is there's probably a great many of you in this room that have tried those things. It hasn't worked. Consequently, you've just raised the white flag and you're surrendering to the fear and anxiety that's gripping you. You are standing on uncertain ground. You have no place to go and you are just gripped with fear. And if that's you, hear the cry, the confident cry of the psalmist. This is what's so stunning to me. Because the psalmist in verse 2, when he says, though all of these horrific things are happening, what does he say at the beginning of verse 2? We will not fear. Now, how could he say this? This may strike you as callous, cold, cruel. How could anybody with a modicum of sense stand in the midst of a world that is crumbling and say, I will not fear? Oh, I want you to see the secret. Because I believe the thrust of this text, the call of Christ to you this day is to see this great life-sustaining truth. Come what may, you need not be afraid. How? This can feel like bumper sticker Christianity. You ever seen that? Just feels kind of like a platitude. This kind of Christian-y thing to say that... Sounds good when days are good, but when times get tough, that just proves to be hollow. It's a cistern that can hold no water. Come what may, I don't need to be afraid. How is that even possible? Notice the divine logic in verse 2. Did you notice the word I didn't read? He does say, I will not fear though the earth gives way. But what does he say right before it? Therefore, I will not fear. Or because of verse 1. I will not fear. What does he say in verse 1 that is the critical key to his fearlessness in the face of trials and crises? Verse 1, God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
I won't fear because God is who he says he is. Unless you still get this gnawing sense, for those of you that are in the throes of trials right now, that this just feels like a scathing rebuke. It just feels like a scolding. I, I shouldn't fear. This feels terribly insensitive. I want you to see that this is a sweet song. This isn't a scathing rebuke. It's not your mom lecturing you. This is a sweet psalm from a psalmist. It's a song. There's actually three verses in this song. Selah marks each of the verses. Verses 1 through uh, 3 is a verse ver or a stanza. Verses 4 through 7 is another stanza. And then verses 8 through 11 is the third and final stanza. And I want you to see with me. I want you to sing with me and with the psalmist of old. Come what may I need not be afraid. And if you want to learn how to sing that song, there are three ways to do it. You too can sing with the psalmist if you firstly learn to run to him. Run to him. Now, before I turn our attention to verses 1 and following, just consider with me, what do we tend to do when times get tough? When the ground falls beneath our feet, where do we run? We tend to run to those refuges that we know. We tend to run to those tried and true places. We tend to run to fear. But what is the first word of the psalm? The first word is God. Elohim. The first name we find in Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. God has the first word in this psalm. And it is to Him we must run as a refuge and as a strength. And I want you to see why this is the case. Firstly, the reason we must, we must run to this God if we are to be fearless in the face of crises is because He is genuinely all you really need. Just notice what the text says in verse 1. He is our refuge and our strength. A refuge, a defense. He is a strong rock tower. In the ancient days, if you were under attack, you would run up to a refuge, a fortress. It was all you had to protect you, to defend yourself from the encroaching enemy. And God is saying, I am your strong rock tower. I am your fortress, your refuge. This is why many people call the 46th Psalm Luther's psalm for the famed reformer Martin Luther penned his most famous hymn a mighty fortress is our God as inspired from this very psalm God is our refuge he is the defense we need but you folks who know any sport let's just take football for example a team that has a great defense is still not going to win unless they have a, at least somewhat of an offense and my friends I want you to see just how clear it is that God is all you need that he is all sufficient for you because he is not only your defense your refuge he is also your strength or your offense he is the one who can enable you can uphold you when the ground begins to fall he is in truth all we need which some of you cynical skeptics in this room are rightly questioning this Okay, if this is true, if God really is all I need, if he is my offense, my defense, my refuge, and my strength, then, then why do my worst fears tend to come true? If he is all I need, then why do these bad things keep happening? 
And this is where I want you to just take a step back with me and notice the glorious logic. He has nowhere ever in any of his inspired revelation, not once does God ever promise to be all you want. Nowhere in scripture does he promise to give you every desire of your wayward heart. In fact, it's just the opposite. The scripture is replete with gentle and sometimes not so gentle reminders that God is going to allow most difficult circumstances to transpire. He never promises to remove the what ifs, so to speak. Rather, he says, and for example, 1 Peter 4 and verse 12, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal as if something strange is happening to you. Don't be surprised at this. I never promised to be all you want. I promised to be all you ever need. I promise not to remove your what ifs. I promise to replace your what ifs with even ifs, which we see exemplified, for example, in the book of Daniel. Do you recall when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were facing the fiery furnace and they said with great faith, our God can deliver us from this, but even if he doesn't, we're still going to trust him? The glorious inspired logic is God is still God and he is still good whether he delivers us or he takes us through the fiery trial. So take heart, my friends. You should run to him. He genuinely is all you need. He may not be all you want, but he is precisely what you need. Run to this refuge and run to this strength. But some of you have probably realized by experience, this is kind of pithy, it's almost cliche, but it is true. Have you ever found it to be true that you don't really realize God is all you need until God is all you have? I think that's why the psalmist includes in this second phrase that he is not only our refuge and strength, he is a very present help in trouble. That means this, he is near, he is close, he comes attentively to you at your lowest point. He is, the word trouble means a tight space, a cornered space. It's when you're in this narrow, restricted space, when you have nowhere to turn. It's at that point that he is nearest to you. Which for many of you in this room, you're thinking, is God really all I have? When I'm in this cornered spot and I can't turn left or I can't turn right, in my head I want to believe that God is all I have, but it seems that when trials are most acute in my life, God seems absent. Have you ever found that to be true? That in times of prosperity, He seems more present, and in times of adversity, He seems more absent? Have you ever found that where you cry out to God, you've been told by your preacher, you've been told by your friend, run to Him when times are tough, and then when you do, you're met with silence, and this is what I want you to hear. That is a deceptive lie from the evil one. That God is absent from you in your times of adversity. Take it from the psalmist who couldn't disagree more. His logic is this. The more you need him, the nearer he is to you. The more needy you are, the nearer he is. The famed British preacher of 19th Victorian uh, England, 19th century Victorian England, Charles Spurgeon. He once said that God never withdraws from his afflicted. He is closer than a friend or a relative. He's closer than trouble itself. My friends, take it to the bank. He's all you need. He's all you have. So run to him. But you may still object. 
and say, I've done this. I've run to him. I have sought him in my time of trouble. But when I do, when I flee to my maker, when I run to this great refuge, when I come to this great strength, this very present help in trouble, he's just not moving. I don't see him working. I don't notice him doing what he said he would do. Have any of you ever felt that way? Where when you run to your maker, you just find yourself wondering, when's he going to do something? When's he going to work? I want you to notice this next stanza, beginning in verse 4, and I want to fixate on verse 5. He changes his tune, and he says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the most holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her win. The morning dawns. Dawn, the fourth watch of the night. Some of you work night shift and you're familiar with these shifts. But in ancient days, they would have four watches of the night. Six to nine, nine to twelve, twelve to three, three to six. The hardest, least desirable watch of the night was three to six. It's when you're most tired. Your metabolism is at its slowest. You're at your most vulnerable It is at that precise moment God promises that he is going to come and help you. Did you hear that? It's when you are your weakest, your most vulnerable. It's at that precise moment that he has declared his help will come. Hear me that his timing is always, always, always perfect. Sometimes he comes before the trial. Consider how he came to Noah before the flood. Sometimes he comes during the trial. Consider how he came in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He did not prevent them from going in. And sometimes he comes even after the trial. Consider how he came to Mary and Martha upon the loss of their beloved brother Lazarus. After he was dead, no matter when he comes, whether before, during, or after, you can trust that his timing is purpose. So I'm encouraging you, don't just run to him. Wait on him. Learn to wait on his perfect timing. It may feel quite dark right now for you, but dawn is coming. So while you wait for the sun to rise, just remember with me three things we see in this second stanza. First, I want you to note, remember that God is for you, even though it feels very dark. He's for you. Just notice what verse 4 says. There is a river that makes glad the city of God. Now you Bible students, you probably know that the city of God is referring to Jerusalem. And if you're familiar with geography, you know Jerusalem, unlike most major cities in world history, was not built on a river. It's a city on a hill. There is no river through there. So what river does he speak of? He could be historically referring to Hezekiah redirecting the water from the Gihon Spring through what's called the Hezekiah Tunnel that brought water into the city, perhaps. But if you look at other imagery, for example, in Ezekiel, for example, in John, for example, in Revelation, we are forced to conclude that the river of which he speaks is a metaphorical, poetic image of his abundant, sustaining, supplying, all-satisfying grace. He gives to his people. God is a river for you. He is coming and he is meeting all of your needs when you cannot meet them yourself. It's when you, a city on a hill, are standing there with no supply. It is he who comes and gives you that great supply. But have you ever found that you often tend to miss his goodness in your life? Have you ever found that 
His power at work is often missed. For example, just look at the contrast between verses 2 and 3 and verse 4. Verses 2 and 3 is mighty, noisy power. This is the power of an earthquake, the power of a hurricane. You can't miss it. The news won't let you miss it. But a river's different. It's, there aren't news reports about rivers. Have any of you ever seen a news report about the Colorado River taking yet another millimeter off that gorge called the Great Grand Canyon? Of course not. But that river has done unspeakable things to that gorge. What hurricane have you ever seen come through and create a Grand Canyon? But that river has. You see, God's power is like this river. It is often quiet, but its power is unmistakable. Have you failed to see it? Have you failed to recognize his magnificent power in your life? Don't miss it. He's for you. Wait on him. Though his hand may be hidden, his hand is at work in your life. He's for you. There is a river that is going to make glad your heart, my friends. He is all supplying your needs. He's for you. Notice in verse 5, he's with you, the text says. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. That word midst means near or close, as close as can be. Put it this way, when God is near, you need not fear. My little girl, Eliza, for the first couple years of her life, we would try to get her to come walk up and say hi to Pastor Clint. And she was scared to death of him. She feared. And so how we began to get her to overcome that fear was to let her hold her daddy's hand. And as I held her hand and approached him, she took some quiet confidence in her dad. And before long, now she runs to him and gives him a big bear hug. Now I gotta admit, there's probably some bribery involved in all that as well. She might have gotten a few gummy bears for going up and giving him a hug. How many of you have had a terrible doctor's appointment ahead and you didn't want to go alone and so you brought your wife you brought your husband you bought your dear friend because you just needed somebody there to give you greater confidence how much more confidence ought we to have that there is a good loving sovereign all creator God who is here with you he is in the midst of you he is as near as near can be God is with you he is indeed the rock of your salvation he is as the Bible says the anchor of your soul he is a firm foundation for you so come what may you need not be afraid for he's with you he's for you but notice in verse 6 some of you are thinking, I get it, but I am tired of waiting. I'm not a patient person, and I am sick and tired of just waiting on God's timing. Have you noticed, Kyler? Notice what verse 6 says. It says that the nations are raging, that the kingdoms are tottering. Have you watched the news? Have you seen what's going on? I can't keep sitting here waiting on God. i got to do something. I, I need to do something. How many of you constantly feel compelled to do something? I hesitate to use this analogy because I uh, heard it from a preacher who disqualified himself, but, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day, so I want you to hear this. Many of us are like a neurotic rooster. There was a rooster who would crow when the sun rose, and when he crowed, he noticed that all the other animals and the farmer would wake with him. And over time, he started to notice that he had some power. 
when I crow, people wake up. And before long, he began to neurotically think, when I crow, the sun comes up. If I don't crow, the sun won't come up. If I don't crow, the folks won't get up. If I don't crow, the world's going to stop. The world depends on me crowing. Now that poor rooster had some foul logic, no pun intended. That was really bad, I shouldn't have said that. I'm not going to do that at the 11 o'clock. Forgive me. How many of you find yourselves in that ridiculous position where you are operating as if the sun rises because of you? You are looking at the morning sun that hasn't come up yet and you are demanding it rise now. This, I, I got to do something to get that sun to come up. And my plea to you is that you would hear that he is not only for you, he is not only with you. My friends, remember, he is not you. God is God and you are not. Notice what he says in the face of raging nations, in the face of tottering kingdoms. He says, I utter my voice and the earth melts. The word that created the world will melt the world. The word, my friends, that was spoken at the beginning will make all things new eventually. His word is so powerful that I want you to hear this. He's got more power in a vowel than a million-man army. This is God we speak of. He speaks and things happen. So wait on him. Trust his word. Your dawn is coming because he's for you. He's with you. And praise be to God, he is not you. So run to him. Wait on him. But now what? We're waiting. We're, we're trusting in the dark what we learned in the light. We're trusting that he's for us, that he's with us, that he's not us. We're trusting, we're waiting. But what do we do now? I think this is why God interjects. Did you all notice the quotation mark in verse 10? That the speaker changes? It was a psalmist talking the whole time. Until we get to verse 10 and God speaks up. And God says, be still and know that I am God. In other words, that phrase, be still, it's not what you think. It is stop, surrender, settle down. Let's put it this way. Rest. Thirdly and finally, in the face of great crises, you need not fear if you run to him, if you wait on him, and thirdly and finally, if you learn to rest in him. Just rest. The Hebrew language is a very vivid language. It often evokes imagery. And that phrase, be still, literally means to let your hands fall down. It's like you're carrying all the weight of the world. You're carrying this load and he's saying, drop your hands just relax for a second. Remember, you are not God. Just let your hands hang down. The word also pictures just sitting down, sinking down. Have you ever just sunk into your chair at home? When you do that, the reason it's so wonderfully relaxing is because you are no longer striving anymore. You are literally being still. Just sink, rest, God is God and you are not. His cry is that in the face of these crises, run to him as your refuge and strength. Wait on him. He is going to make that sun rise. 
He'll bring His help when that morning sun comes. And just be still. Rest. Relax. Just relax, my friends. Lean on Him. Trust Him. And notice, it's when it's most dark, when you're most weak, that you are going to feel most inclined to just give up and say, you know what, God? You're right. I am going to be still and trust you. So in your, if you are here in a most dark hour, the call of God to you this day is to just drop your hands, sink into him, so to speak. Be still and rest, remembering two things. I want you to see in verses 8 and 9. See with me. Remember this as you sink into his everlasting arms. Remember that he has been faithful to you. Come, the psalmist says in verse 8, and see the works of the Lord. Have you read the Old Testament? It is one great long testimony of God's good works. Just come and see them. See what God has done for you. He will bring desolation on this earth. He is going to make war cease. He is going to break the bow, shatter the spear, burn the chariots with fire. He can do it. He has and he will. My friends, see that God has been faithful to you. Just rest in him. And if you don't know what that even looks like, how do you rest in the fact that he's been faithful to you? I just want to encourage you to take one step towards this by reading the Bible this year. If you need a testimony of God's goodness, His faithfulness, just go read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament and see page after page after page of faithfulness. May I also encourage you to start journaling. I began on my 34th birthday journaling a prayer every single day. And I haven't stopped since then. And this has become an unbelievable source of encouragement for my soul. Why? It's not because I like journaling. I really don't. What has become such a source of strength for me is I can flip back a few months and see all the things that were burdening my heart and I had forgotten about them because God has been so good to me. If you want to see a testimony of his faithfulness to you, record it. Because if you're anything like me, you don't even remember what you had for dinner last night. You need to record these things and see His goodness in your life. Read your Bible. Journal or something. Record what God is doing. He's been faithful to you, so just rest in that. But look at the end of verse 10. He's not just been faithful to you. Praise be to God. He will be faithful to you. For it says with clarion assurance, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Take heart. This is going to happen. I will finish what I started. Victory is mine. One day, Paul tells us in Philippians 2 and verse 10, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus really is who he said he is. So just rest in him. Take heart, my friends. The game is rigged. He's going to win. And so you can just drop your hands you can sink down in the fact that God is God and you are not. Be still and know that I am God. But I would be remiss if I closed my Bible and prayed without looking at the chorus of this song. We know the verses are what we tend to forget when we sing songs. It's the chorus you remember. It's the chorus you repeat. It's the refrain. And did you all notice that I skipped the refrain? Verses 7 and 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I want you to see, finally, in this short little sentence, see the goodness and greatness of our God. See His mercy. See His might. 
For the God, the Lord of hosts means the God of angel armies. This is a God who is bigger than you could ever conceive. He is great beyond the earth. He is mighty. He is unspeakably high. This is a big, great God. But he is also the God of Jacob, which if you know the Bible, you would think of all the people he would identify himself as. The God of Jacob? Why not the God of Noah or the God of Job or the God of Daniel or the God of even Abraham? I mean, he was better than that. The God of Jacob? Jacob was the worst guy in the Old Testament. Which brings me great encouragement that if God would identify himself as the God of Jacob, he will identify himself as your God. You know your heart. I know my heart. And it is that version of you that he sent Jesus to save. Praise be to God that the God of Jacob is our God. He is great, but he is good and gracious. He is mighty, but he is merciful. And so come to this merciful God. Run to him. He is your refuge and your strength. Flee to him. Wait on him. The dawn is coming. Just wait. It may feel quite dark in your soul right now, but he promises that help is on the way. He's for you. He's with you. And praise be to God, he's not you. So just wait on him. And then lastly, just drop your hands. Be still. Rest in him. Because he has been faithful to you, and he will be faithful to you. If you do this, my friends, take heart. You will join the chorus of all creation and you will join this psalmist as his soul sings, Come what may, I will not be afraid for the Lord of hosts is with me. The God of Jacob is my fortress. Why don't you join me as we pray? With your heads bowed, I'm going to ask the Lord to seal this message to your soul. Some of you are gripped in fear. Your heart is wrought. Verses 2 and 3 are a portrait of your soul. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though the seas roar and foam, I will not fear because God is my refuge and strength. He is a very present help in trouble. Oh, I pray that the Spirit of God would do what I cannot and seal that to your heart so that we could in integrity leave this place this new year's lord's day and in one accord as a church called hickory grove say come what may in 2023 i will not be afraid and if you are gripped in fear and you know that this god of jacob is not your god he sent jesus to do for you what you cannot do for yourself Jesus lived the life you never lived. He died the death that you deserved. And he is calling you this day to come to him, to see his wonderful works, to be saved. And so in a moment, I'm going to pray. And when I say amen, Gerald will lead us in a song of response. And as we sing this song, I surrender all, which is another way of saying I am being still and knowing that you are God. As we sing this song, you may need to cry out in your seat and plead that God would do a miraculous transformative work Maybe you need to talk to somebody because you know if you don't, this will go in one ear and out the other. There will be pastors down here at the front. They're here waiting for you. They want to talk and pray with you. 
They'll be in the lobby after the service where they would love to do so as well. The call of Christ to you this day is to come. Father in heaven, to the glory of Jesus and by the power of your Spirit, would you move so that all of us in one accord could sing with the psalmist, come what may, we will not be afraid, for you are with us, you are for us, and praise be to God, you are not us. And we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Stand to your feet as we stand and as we sing, the call of Christ to you this day is to come.